Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Penelope Plaza, who is a lecturer in architecture at the University of Reading, about her new book, Culture is Renewable Oil, How Territory, Bureaucratic Power and Culture Coalesce in the Venezuelan Petrostate. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. This is a really interesting book um, that covers both a really important case study in Venezuela, also has lots of relevance to how we understand culture, but I guess has got this really kind of crucial intervention in how we understand oil states, petrostates, and the idea of kind of um, the, the oil culture in which, to an extent, I guess, all of us still live. And the place to start, I suppose, is, is, is where you're interested in both the Venezuelan kind of context, but also writing about this uh, idea of the culture of oil came from? Well, the, the, the interest came from first from my activity as an urban activist. Uh, you know, aside from my academic work in Venezuela, I was part of a collective doing urban interventions in the public space. And in the way that culture is managed and regarded, I felt that in contemporary accounts of Venezuelan culture, sometimes that sort of the better state got taken for granted, and I realized that unless you told the story of, of, of oil, sort of the story of how Venezuelan culture, contemporary culture, came to be, uh, something was missing from, from the whole story, uh, I guess, and also because it's embedded in, uh, in everything. So the reason why we have museums, why we have infrastructure, why we have social housing is all because we are a petrostate. I'm really interested in this because the the book, I guess, starts from the idea that we're really used to talking about oil and the economy. We're used to talking about maybe um, oil company or you know petrochemical companies' influence on politics. Obviously, at the moment we've got you know big debates about um, environmentalism and and you know kind of our oil dependence. But, but you're really keen to kind of foreground the idea that actually we should be thinking about oil and culture, you know. So you mentioned, like, you know, museum. 
and, and the kind of culture we have uh, an oil. But I guess one of the key things is in the book is the way you talk about this cultural dimension of, uh, of oil and the idea that culture is a kind of a resource, a bit like um, hydrocarbons, a bit like oil. So it, it'd be good to start with, I guess, those two things. On the one hand, um, the idea of culture as a, as a resource that might be a bit like oil, and then on the other hand, the cultural dimension of oil. Well, in the cultural resource, uh, there the work of uh, George Judice was uh, very helpful uh, because, you know, in a way, what he establishes in the species of culture, I uh, expanded to the idea of culture pretty much like a mineral resource. Uh, because in the, I guess I, I have to include a bit of history here that people need to understand that as Venezuela was becoming a new nation, that's when we also discovered oil. So a statecraft became completely a mesh with the oil uh, industry. So everything that is contemporary modern uh, culture is also embedded in this idea of the age of oil. And also that meant that the way that social relations and politics were formed are inseparable from uh, the culture of oil. Um, so in that sense, then culture is kind of a resource, kind of also like a mineral resource that is uh, utilized for social and political uh, purposes that then is not able to be separated from, from oil, but there's also a very contradictory, ambivalent relationship uh, with oil because on the one sense, it's all um, encompassed with tropes of being uh, magical, of giving you uh, powers to transform uh, the country like almost overnight with the immediate influx of, of money that pretty much flows straight from the ground into the state's coffers, but there's also this long-standing narrative uh, that was um, materialized in uh, anthropologist uh, Rodolfo Quintero's work in his essay titled The Culture of Oil, where he defined the cultural oil as a foreign force of conquest that brings its own language, technology, inventions, that what it does is destroy the national indigenous culture to um, substitute it with this cultural oil that is all about the oil uh, business. So for him, uh, all camps were colonizing forces and oil cities were cities that were sterile, but there was also a very um, Manichaean view of, uh, of culture where you have on the one side the indigenous national, you could say traditional culture, and on the other hand, all the modern contemporary culture that came with oil that is equated with the American way of life. Um, and that thing, that dichotomy has been quite prevalent all through the history in Venezuela, how we relate uh, with this sort of very uh, difficult to unpack relationship with uh, culture and, and, and oil. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the book makes the point quite quite forcefully that this isn't like a a new thing you know it, it's not something that's just kind of sprung up um since uh the bolivarian Re revolution actually this is something that has a really long uh history and, and the idea of kind of uh, venezuela uh, as an oil state is, is something that 
in some ways is kind of um, baked into to, to everything about the nation, irrespective of who's in power. And it'd be great to hear, I, I guess, but briefly about that kind of history and, and the the continuities, um, you know, e- even within the sort of uh, Chavez and, and then, um, you know, that, that kind of more recent um, era, that there are still these kind of continuities of the, of the, the, the primacy of, of oil to the Venezuelan state. Yeah, I guess that's what also taking the uh, cultural uh, approach to looking at oil means that it made it very clear clearer that the Bolivarian Revolution didn't bring such a point of rupture as has been established, at least in the way that it relates to, to oil. So I think just roughly I would organize sort of the history of Venezuela as an oil state into three big periods, which would start with the emergence of the modern oil nation, like from uh, early 20th century to 1958, which was when uh, Marcos Pérez Jiménez's dictatorship was overthrown. And it's sort of the period in which um, Fernando Coronil defines the Venezuelan petrostate as this magical state that tends to rule uh, more based on a sense of wonder than of reason, and when all the powers tends to be concentrated in the figure of the president. And then would be the Pact of Punto Fijo era, or the Punto Fijismo petrostate, that would go run through 1959 to 1970s, and including the 1970s oil booms up until 1998. And then the Chavez era of petrosocialism, uh, which will encompass his um, presidency, and that's where the book ends, like 1999 to 2013, uh, with Chavez's uh, death. Um, so I, I always explain briefly that we can't um, separate Venezuelan statecraft from the development of the oil uh, industry, also because oil companies, when they came to Venezuela, Venezuela was a quite poor country with a lot of deficiencies, so a lot of the infrastructure that the state should have been able to build uh, those resources came from the foreign companies, so those were the ones that built highways, that built churches, that built housing. So there was this sense that oil meant uh, modernity and progress, but also what I explained before, this ambivalent relationship, a lot of the elites uh, saw oil with suspicion because they regarded it as a ephemeral source of wealth that you couldn't really quantify because it was hidden on the ground. So there's another continuity here with this... Um, idea that I also planned in the book, with to sow the oil, uh, which was a slogan coined by intellectual um, Arturo Larpietri, uh, saying that uh, we should use the wealth produced by this destructive mineral economy to modernize the agricultural industry. So it's sort of conflating mining and agricultural uh, language so as to sow the oil as a seed and harvest progress, but just to modernize the agricultural uh, economy. And that's going to be a slogan, an idea that will keep uh, being relieved, whether we have managed to sow the oil uh, or not. Um, and that sort of runs through the whole uh, history of contemporary uh, Venezuela, or even up to the point of uh, Chavez uh, presidencies. So the, these ideas of both continuity and then uh, particular, I guess, you know, cultural uh, tropes like sowing the oil are framed through two really big kind of theoretical ideas that the book um, uses. And, and you talk about these, these two ideas quite, 
uh, kind of early on to, to help us understand uh, the petrostate and these, you know, kind of uh, long continuities. And these are bureaucratic power and then the idea of territory. Yeah. And I guess we, we need to know a bit about both of them before we start talking about um, the specific case studies that you've got of the state oil company and, and some of its cultural practices. So, yeah, what, what do you mean by uh, territory and, and, and bureaucratic power? Well, territory is crucial for the book because, um, you know, the power of the state, which I explain how I mean by bureaucratic power, uh, derives from uh, having control over the oil rent. And control over the oil rent means that you have to have uh, ownership of all the subsoil of the country. Uh, so that means that you have a landlord rentier state uh, to which uh, its power is tied to the land. So I developed my ideas on territory from um, Neil Brenner and Eldon's reading of Lefebvre uh, on this idea of a state space as territory. Um, because just in the way that you know that you could say that the oil in the subsoil was a pre-given uh, for uh, Venezuela, but then having access to that oil wells in the subsoil is what then constituted the Venezuelan petrostate. So I thought that uh, Lefebvre's idea of state-specific territory was um, uh, very important to build that argument because, uh, in a way, he says that uh, the territory is not a sort of pre-given uh, form, that in a way there is no state without territory and no territory without, uh, without a state, that they constitute each other uh, through different circumstances in history and ways of uh, making uh, politics, uh, which I think is very important to understand, particularly when you're talking about a, a petrostate where the economy is really tied to um, to the ground. And that's where bureaucratic power um, comes in, uh, because then that means that the state does not uh, exercise power by itself. It's more like an institutional ensemble. And if we look back at as the way that the statecraft was emerging in Venezuela in early 20th century, it was modeled uh, based on the bureaucracy efficiency brought by the foreign oil companies. Because if we, don't ha- we did not have, a, in a way, a process of um, developing efficiency bureaucracy given to all the deficiencies that we had as an agricultural economy. Um, so that's where those two uh, come together, viewing bureaucratic power as the side where um, uh, the state uh, congregates uh, an ensemble of, of institutions where it's based on those people who are able to act through the bureaucratic power that then will be able to explain what I talked about later about the way Hugo Chavez was able to centralize um, bureaucratic power into his. Uh, presidency, and then PDVSA also being able to function, which is the the state-owned oil company, to function as kind of a state within the state or a parallel state with its own uh, territory and bureaucratic power running through uh, all this narrative. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off i mean pedavessa is is crucial to this uh entire story and i guess you you've hinted there actually that um it gives us a way of making clear how ideas about territory and, and bureaucratic power work in in your book so what is it like you know i guess we, we think in some ways of like you know companies as um these organizations that have, you know, actions and, and do things, but, but you tell the story of Pedavesa as, as almost, I guess, a kind of like an alternative uh, state within Venezuela. And, and I guess it'd be really um, kind of crucial that we, we understand uh, what it is and, and, and what it was able to do as well. Okay. So um, I guess in very simple term from it's the state owned oil uh, company that was, um, created in 1975 uh, during uh, the presidency of Carlos Andres Perez, right after um, the law that nationalized um, the oil, aluminum, and other basic uh, industries. Um, so it has been quite prevalent in the way that the economy has functioned since then, because it also was created at a time of uh, oil windfall. And it has become, in a way, the main uh, source of income of of the state. Um, so it is quite crucial to understand uh, PDVSA as uh, central to the bureaucratic power uh, of the state and the way that it has shaped uh, politics and relationships. And because it inherited, because what it did sort of uh, absorb the former uh, sort of U.S. Uh, all companies into a conglomerate that it was owned by the state. So it inherited all its uh, bureaucratic efficiency. So when compared to other um, uh, apparatus of the government, so it really was like the gem of the nation. And it became an, an aspirational place to work. It became an exemplar of what Venezuela could be. Uh, but also... Uh, as time progressed and uh, oil executives in PDVSA tried to internationalize the oil company and make it more, you know, in the like in the realm of BP and other uh, international oil companies, it started to become like a state within the state where you had like a very wealthy state institution in the midst of a third world uh, country, which was begun to be heavily criticized uh, in the 80s and the 90s in the midst of a crash in oil prices. So how it was sort of kept separate from, from the state and saying that all of their uh, policy of internalization and getting some uh, tax uh, exemptions meant that that impoverished the state and as a byproduct um, impoverished uh, quality of living for most of the population. Um, so that's also then why PDVSA became quite 
prominent during the revolution and why Chavez then completely refashioned um, the channeling of resources from PDVSA into the government so as to have a, a more direct relationship between um, the people and the oil rent. What's the cultural story? Um, late, later on in the book, um, you, you sort of move away from, I guess, the um, that political um, or political economy story of Pedavesa and its relationship to the state, and you, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, drill down into yeah. um, the cultural story here. And I, I guess there's there's a couple of things going on. One is um, the visual language of Pedavesa, yeah. Uh, and the other is uh, a particular kind of cultural um, set of projects. Um, so maybe we'll do the latter first. Like, what are the uh, cultural dimensions um, of Pedavesa's work? Well, with uh, the access, you know, to the oil rent, um, Pedavesa, like any other big corporation, also had its cultural um, arm. Uh, which in this case, you know, PDVSA had always sort of been patron of uh, art exhibitions and uh, art publishing, literature. Uh, but in the 1980s, it created something called um, La Estancia Arts Center, which with a revolution after the, after the old strikes of 2002 was renamed PDVSA La Estancia, the social control arm of the new revolutionary PDVSA. And that's where the book's uh, centers its attention. Uh, La Estancia has its headquarters in Caracas. And also by being the social control arm of PDVSA, so it has direct access to the oil rent in a way that other cultural institutions don't. And I guess part of the story that I'm not going to uh, delve too much into detail here was that uh, with this importance of territory, uh, the oil windfall that uh, the revolution enjoyed in the mid-2000s, meant that Chavez could embark on a mission of refashioning the state and creating new um, uh, forms of territorial governance that meant there were all kinds of legal vacuums that were left, that Pedro de Estancia claiming to be part of the uh, law of hydrocarbons and being part of uh, this 25-year-old plan that Chavez launched in 2005 called Sewing All Plan meant that they could regard themselves as a national institution that could surpass the authority of other uh, sort of cultural and heritage institutions that meant that they could then decide to take on uh, work that other institutions could not uh, embark on in a similar way. Could you give some examples of that? Um, yeah, well, for example, uh, where the Vesa Lestancia is, uh, presents itself as having uh, different branches. So one of the key um, work that they started doing was um, restoring a lot of the uh, modern public uh, artwork that was scattered all over Caracas that had been uh, falling in complete disrepair. So like the Sphere by... Uh, Jesus Soto and the Polychromia by Cruz Diez, who are quite iconic uh, public artworks that were installed in the city in the 1970s, which are symbols of the modern orientation. They took on the restoration of the war, but also uh, took on the re of Savannah Grande Boulevard, 
and opening new art centers across the country as part of PDVSA. And the general manager at the time, um, you know, sort of put forward the slogan saying that uh, PDVSA La Estancia is oil that harvests culture, as if all these cultural um, sort of objects and uh, sculptures and artworks were sort of proof that, you know, when you plant the seed of oil, you can harvest culture in the city. I mean, obviously there are like various um, critical elements we, we could bring to that, particularly in our current context, you know. Yeah. As we're, we're talking, we've just seen, you know, the end of uh, a couple of weeks of interventions uh, in London by um, Extinction Rebellion yeah. protesters and, you know, um, the, the kind of the, the nature of uh, a sort of, you know, a culture based on petrostate income and sustainability is obviously a really crucial and, and critical moment. But I, I think what's also interesting has been your analysis of, I guess, how this um relationship manifested itself visually so mm-hmm. in the book you talk about the kind of you know discourses and, and the discursive relationships between sowing the oil harvesting uh, the cultural benefits of the oil but there are also like distinctive visual interventions yeah. uh, that really kind of shape um i suppose the visual um like the visual culture of uh, of, of Venezuela and you know Caracas in, in a couple of your examples, and you start the book with this uh, being struck yes. by a basically a big advert, um, and also you, you kind of close the book with it as well. So it, it'd be great to hear about the, I guess the kind of the visual elements as, as well as that you know uh, discursive connection that you've already pointed to. Well, the adverts are quite crucial. Unfortunately, I didn't get permission to uh, reproduce them in in the book, but they're still. Uh, found online. And the thing what struck me was that just as I mentioned these two um, uh, sort of great pieces of public art by Soto and Cruzies, uh, the adverts were put on one of these petrol stations where you usually would see just adverts for lubricants and, you know, sort of boring stuff. Um, it had a giant old worker, all dressed uh, in red, sort of placing this public art as if, as, as if it were miniatures. Um, but not just, that was already striking, but what struck me the most was the slogan. That the slogan says, uh, we transform oil into a renewable resource for you. Leaving it sort of open-ended as, as to what that renewable resource is. But when you see the series of adverts that had all kinds of female and male giant oil workers uh, placing like miniaturized versions of, of, of these uh, pieces all over the city, um, you see all of the art, public arts, uh, playgrounds, sculptures, um, you know, 19th century uh, gazebos in the park. And in a way, sort of leaving to understand that all those things that are part of the culture of the city are there because oil made them possible. Um, that that renewable resource, in a way, it's culture itself. Um, so there, that's why I proposed this notion of culture as uh, renewable um, oil, meaning that uh, as a, as a trope, um, with continuing to uh, to play on this sowing oil um, slogan, what the revolution does and what Pedro Salestancia does in particularly is to say that they have 
achieve uh, the utopian dream because they are harvesting it. And the way you harvest the sowing oil is by producing cultural objects. I mean, it, it seems, uh, might editorialize a little, it seems ludicrous now that, um, you know, we, we'd have this sort of connection. And particularly uh, as we're seeing um, across America and, and Britain uh, and actually many other countries demands that culture is, you know, radically disconnected uh, from oil, uh, particularly in terms of um, oil sponsorship and, and things like this. And I guess it prompts the question of how uh, a petrostate might um, disconnect itself um, from um, this, not just reliance on oil, but the idea of, you know, um, oil bringing these kind of cultural benefits. I, I suppose there are similar debates in the Gulf with, um, you know, the, the kind of new museums uh, yeah. program and that kind of stuff. And so, it, you know, I mean, we, we could use the example of Venezuela, but we, you know, we can also use other examples. Um, obviously, the, the book concentrates on, on Venezuela, but it is there or what kind of future do you conceive of um, for petrostates and culture in the context of, you know, not just the institutions, but the visual language and the political discourses being so dependent on uh, this kind of, you know, supposedly benevolent relationship with oil? Well, the key thing for sort of petrostates um, is whether, you know, the petrostate, like their interior economy can, you know, be able to coexist with other forms of, uh, you know, economic uh, income. Uh, because the key thing on Venezuela, I think it might be also the case with countries that depend on oil, like the coal for even Nigeria, or sort of Indonesia, is that in the case of Venezuela, which is the one that I know best, uh, oil nation is also a national identity. Uh, it's sort of part of what, you know, the pride of, uh, of being part of the country is that you have this uh, wealth that is hidden on your underneath your feet that meant that you were particularly lucky compared with, uh, with other countries. Um, so there is uh, a myth then to break there that, you know, having, you know, uh, oil in the subsoil does not make you a wealthy country. It can make for a wealthy state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that wealth uh, is invested uh, wisely. Um, so when I, yeah, when I see those requests of uh, not having dirty oil money um, on culture coming from the with the Istanbul where I come from, where if it hadn't been for uh, the oil west, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, like public education, we wouldn't be able to have um, public universities, uh, museums, uh, cultural infrastructure that Venezuela enjoyed uh, up until the, the 90s and, and in some way it still does. Is quite difficult, so it does require a lot of a nuanced uh, conversation as to how do you put in on under control um, an economy that is dependent on a mineral resource that when it goes well, you can have an instant windfall that completely disturbs um, the mechanisms of uh, sort of, of politics, of a social contract, and how can you find alternative sources of, uh, of income that will mean that, you know, that the state and the population will have a different relationship to this um, sort of 
social contract politics and how culture is embedded um, within those uh, those dynamics. Um, so in a country like Venezuela, where the oil industry is like you know in the DNA of statecraft, I find it quite difficult because you can also see like younger um, uh, political leaders not being able to imagine the country as anything other than a petrostate. So it is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is a debate that needs to happen, but it's on the practical level how that takes place, where also oil red money gives so much benefits in terms of politics and control of territory and being having access to a direct source in which you don't have to, I mean, as, as a state, as a government, you don't need to uh, reach consensus because you have direct access uh, to the, uh, you know, to the rent money. It's, you know, it is quite complicated. Something that I that I think has been a complex uh, debate that I think has been oversimplified. In terms of this complex debate, is this what you're going to be intervening in uh, with your future work? Or have you sort of <laughs> had enough about writing about uh, oil states? Uh, and are you going to be doing uh, different things and working on different themes? Um, well, I, I am, yeah, I'm kind of taking a, uh, I think I'm going to be taking a, a little break. Uh, well, I, I will be going back to it. Uh, but right now, I want having look at this from, if you know, like from the macro structure of the petrostate and culture. I want to look at what happens in the detail in the day-to-day life, and in that, I want to look at the work of uh, urban activists and creative practicing. How do you um, contest or navigate? Uh, you know, the legacy, the cultural legacy, particularly in terms of architecture and public art as an individual, as organized people, particularly since a lot of the social infrastructure that Venezuelans enjoyed have collapsed because of mismanagement and the crash in, in oil prices. So it will, it will remain a part of the narrative, but I want to look at something um, different in the sense of how that affects lived experience. Uh, as uh, as a way for individuals to organize themselves to create sort of infrastructure that are not so heavily dependent on like a I don't know like a protective father like uh, petrostate and see whether there is some kind of uh, keys that could be uh, extracted there of how what kind of future a country like Venezuela would have from that point of view. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.